Chapter 49 Hanging Out in Washington The year 2000 not only ushered in a new millennium, it brought with it a flurry of recognition for the pinnacle of success that Medical Manager had achieved. To me, who was just on the magic carpet ride for the ride, it was all simply a tribute to the perfection of life's flow. I had not sought any recognition. I had just thrown myself into life's wind to see where it would take me. I was invited by one of our previous board members, Ray Kurtzwheel, to join him at the White House in March, where he was to receive the National Medal of Honor in Technology. Ray is accredited with many major inventions, including the first microchip that allowed an electronic keyboard to sound like the grand piano and other real instruments. He also considered one of the fathers of speech recognition software. Ray had been on Medical Manager Corporation's board, and I had sat on Kurtzwill's Education Systems Board. Though it all, through it all, we had become good friends. He even stayed with us at the temple a few times and showed a serious interest in Eastern philosophy. I would have to wear a tuxedo to the White House, which was far from my normal attire, but I was excited about joining Ray for this honor. Like many others, I had been to the White House as a tourist, but certainly not a guest of the president. There was a cocktail party after the ceremony, and we were allowed to walk freely throughout all of the rooms of the first floor residence. I gazed out a window in the green room that overlooked the Washington Monument, and I thought about how many presidents had taken in that view. Getting used to actually sitting on the antique furniture in those rooms was difficult enough, but then I realized that the people I was having conversations with were all National Medal of Honor winners in some field of science. President Clinton joined the mix, and I even ran into Stevie Wonder in the hallway. All in all, it was one of those what-am-I-doing-here moments. I'm a yogi who moved out to the woods to meditate. I surrendered to the flow of life, and I ended up here, which is unbelievable. That was not my only trip to Washington that year. The very next month, I came back to represent the medical manager when it was installed into the archives of the Smithsonian Institution. The Smithsonian was sponsoring an effort to document the information technology revolution for future generations. In much the same way as we know now, to look at the Industrial Revolution someday, people will be fascinated by the time period in which computers revolutionize the way that we live. Each year, a panel of CEOs of the world's leading IT companies did a search for organizations that had done extraordinary work in the field. Because of our work in the area of electronic healthcare transactions, Medical Manager was one of the companies selected in the year 2000 to have its story preserved in a time capsule for the future. There was a grand banquet the night before and a ceremony at the museum the next day. I brought a few of the old-time employees with me, as well as Donna and Durja. Reflecting back 20 years ago when I was sitting by that 12-by-12-foot room in the woods by myself writing this program, one could never have imagined that it would lead to the Smithsonian. As it turned out, I would have to return to D.C. once again. In August of 2000, on a very important trip, I had been asked to represent the company at a meeting with the Department of Justice. Before larger companies can combine, the U.S. government reserves the right to determine if the combination could stifle competition and violate antitrust laws. In the case of the Healthy and WebMD medical manager merger, the government requested a very detailed information and face-to-face -face meeting. 
The reason for this was that the medical manager network services was sending so many claims to Envoy that the government was concerned about allowing us to become part of the same company. My immediate reaction to this situation was one of deep humility. Had medical manager actually reached the point of success that the U.S. government had to be concerned about the very antitrust laws I had studied in business school? No, not really. But we were going to have to convince them of that. Sabrina and I flew up to Washington to prepare for the Justice Department meeting. It was around that time that I began to notice that my life was becoming filled with more and more attorneys. We met for a strategy meeting at the office of one of the largest law firms in D.C. There were attorneys everywhere, but one always stood out from the rest. Jim Mercer was Marty's litigation specialist, and he understood both the law and business at a phenomenal level. I had learned to have great respect and confidence in Jim, and I was glad that he would be present at the time of the DOJ meeting. I, of course, had never previously dealt with the Justice Department. It was not exactly my everyday experience to be entering the DOJ building and surrounded by a large team of attorneys. Nevertheless, after hours of very intense questioning, Sabrina and I had managed to address the government's concerns satisfactorily. When it was all said and done, the merger was not going to pose any antitrust problems. Though we were very relieved when the ordeal was over, it had actually turned out to be quite a learning experience. All of this exposure to intensely powerful people and situations was having a profound effect on the psyche I had watched so diligently. I had never been exposed to this powerful lifestyle. Nothing in me got off on it or wanted anything from it, but it did make me deal with parts of my being that I would not have faced otherwise. If I saw any weaknesses, fear, or anxiety came up, I just deeply relaxed back into where I was watching from. I simply kept letting go of whatever came up. This is where life had taken me, and I used all these situations as a way of letting go of myself. It was definitely working. I kept being pushed into strongly positive and negative situations, and I increasingly found myself very clear and in an undisturbed state. It seemed that the more challenges that life had put me through, the less inner energy flow was affected by outer conditions. What years of willful meditation had not gotten rid of, life's situations and challenges were rooting out of me. As long as I made it getting rid of myself my only goal, every situation was fruitful experience. If I'd had any other goal, I think the constant pressure would have been overwhelming. I found that I actually got more peaceful inside as I dealt with the ever-increasing magnitude of challenges. Life was molding me each day to become who I needed in order to handle tomorrow's tasks. All I had to do was let go and not resist the process. For the next few years, my medical manager practice services division continued to grow to its peak financial success. We grew to be more than 2,300 employees and were generating more than $300 million a year in revenue. We were the most widely installed practice management vendor in the country, and we had begun turning our attention toward building a fully computerized electronic health record. It was a period with tremendous challenges that I thought was putting me through an unprecedented growth. Little did I know that life's portal of dramatic change was about to open up once again. And when it did this time, it would completely redefine for me what it meant to go through a transformational growth experience. Total Surrender, Chapter 50, The Raid It was Wednesday, September 3rd, 2003. I remember because on Wednesdays I go into Gainesville in the morning to see Dr. Chance for a health tune-up. 
After the appointment, I noticed that I had a voicemail from Lisa Elliott, the resident attorney at the R&D facility in Alachua. She said it was very important, so I returned her call while still in the parking lot. I got Lisa on her cell phone, and she was very glad to hear from me. Her voice was uncharacteristically tense, and I realized that something was very wrong. She began by telling me that I needed to come to work right away because the FBI was there, and they wanted to see me. My first thought was about a federal marshal who had come to the facility a few years earlier looking for a prior employee. I asked Lisa if they were looking for someone, and she said no. The FBI is here, 12 to 15 agents plus the sheriff's department. They've taken over the entire facility. They've shut down all the phone lines, and this is a full-blown raid. They've shut down the computer systems. Helicopters are flying overhead. Agents are armed, and there's a search warrant. You need to come here right away. I clearly heard the words she was saying, and I understood the sense of urgency in which they were said, but the situation was so absurd that I could not relate to it in any manner. It was like maybe they have the wrong address. I guess that's why they didn't disturb me. In fact, it sounded like it was going to be rather exciting getting to show them that they had made a mistake. I asked Lisa what was going on. Why were they there? She said that she had no idea, but apparently the same thing was happening at our offices in Tampa and the corporate headquarters in New Jersey. She had been trying to call Charlie Mele, our general counsel, but she couldn't get through. The phones were down corporate-wide. I assured her that I would be there right away. During the 20-minute drive back to the office, I tried calling everyone I could think of who might have been in, who might have some information. I still had absolutely no idea what was going on when I pulled up to the R&D facility. The front drive was completely blocked off with sheriff department vehicles and the employees showing up for work were being turned away. I pulled up to a deputy and identified myself. He made a call on his radio and immediately signaled to others to let me through. As I drove up the long and winding drive through the beautiful hay fields, law enforcement vehicles were scattered everywhere. When I approached the building one, I saw the Sheriff's Department 40-foot mobile command center stretched across our parking lot. We had five buildings by then, and FBI and Sheriff's Department personnel were positioned around all of them. There were, indeed, two helicopters buzzing overhead. I think they ended up being a part of the media coverage. I parked, my nor I parked in my normal spot and made my way into the building. The place was swarming with law enforcement officers. I was met by four or five agents who immediately walked me into the back conference room where I was to spend the day. I requested that at our house, attorney, Lisa, be present, and she was brought into the room. The agents identified themselves as from the FBI and the Treasury Department. They were very professional and businesslike. I was presented with a search warrant, which Lisa had already reviewed, and I was informed that the warrant gave them full control of the facility. They had the right to take any and all items that fell within the itemized categories. They asked me to sign a paper acknowledging that I had been served the warrant. I glanced at Lisa as she nodded that I should sign. I had absolutely no idea what to do. I was completely out of my element. The only frame reference I had for this sort of thing was the movies, and I doubted that that was going to be much help. I asked the agents in charge if they could help me understand what was going on. They didn't say much, but they referred me to a list of about 30 names that they said were persons essential to their investigation. The entire executive management team from the original Medical Manager Corporation was on the list, as were Marty, the attorney Jim Mercer, and some top people from WebMD's corporate accounting. 
My mouth must have been agape as I looked at the list, but there were also a few other names that really floored me, like the senior auditor from the highly respected public accounting firm that we had used for medical manager corporation. I was taking everything in calmly, but my mind was spinning trying to find the clues about what was behind all of this. It was actually the presence of one name on the list that first caught my attention. The name was Pat Sedlicek. Unlike everyone else on the list, this person was neither part of our executive team nor part of our legal or accounting. Pat worked on the dealer acquisition firm, which was run by Bobby Davids, our VP of acquisitions. Bobby had come into the company at the time of the 1997 initial public offering, along with John Sessions, our chief operations officer, and David Ward, our VP of sales. I would hardly have recognized Pat's name out of our 2,300 division employees, except that we were currently in the process of investigating him for taking kickbacks from some of the dealers. That investigation had begun in the late 2002 and by early 2003 had included Bobby Davids and a couple of the other employees. WebMD's corporate attorneys, with the help of outside counsel, were handling the matter. We had already fired the people involved and sued them in the Tampa court in order to obtain a subpoena power and freeze Bobby's and Pat's assets. As our investigation went on, we were finding more and more incidents of Bobby and or Pat arranging kickbacks from the dealers they were acquiring. The subpoenas we obtained of their bank accounts had revealed intricate network of shell companies Bobby had been using to hide the money. The investigators were able to trace the funds coming in and going out of these accounts to see who was involved in the money trail. Pat had already begun to operate, and it was obvious that Bobby Davids were the ringleader. By the time of the raid, we had traced millions of dollars, and it was still ongoing in, in investigation. With both Pat and Bobby's names on the list and the search warrants listing more than a 100 of our dealer acquisitions, it was likely that these raids were somehow related to what Bobby had been doing. But these kickback schemes involved only four or five employees. And our investigation of the matter that was being dealt with was open. Why couldn't the government just talk to the investigating attorneys? Why a sneak attack raid in Alaska, Tampa, and now New Jersey? Everything was readily available. I was finally able to get Charlie, WebMD's general counsel, on my cell phone. He confirmed that there had been raids by the FBI at WebMD's headquarters in New Jersey, and he was much in the dark as I was. He also suspected that this might be associated with the illegal activity Bobby Davids had been involved in. We discussed the possibility that Bobby had tried to strike a deal by telling the government that all the executives were involved in his kickbacks. If so, it didn't seem likely that his story would hold up given all of the evidence that we had in the bank accounts and canceled checks. Charlie said that we would get more clarification over the next few days, but in the meantime, we were to cooperate fully with the agents. A sense of total peace came over me and pretty much remained there the entire day. It was so thick it felt like a protective blanket. I was not concerned in the least. I knew that I had not done anything wrong and therefore they were not going to find anything. If this was the case of Bobby lying to try to save his neck, then the evidence would clearly reveal the truth. I wanted to make sure that I was present enough to fully take in this extraordinary experience. It's not every day that the FBI shows up and raids your place for absolutely no apparent reason. My understanding is that the nationwide, more than 50 government agents were involved in the raid. They took the entire day and by the time they were done, they left with pretty much everything. My desk was cleared of every single scrap of paper. My file cabinets were empty, as were all of those executive assistant Sandy Plum. 
All the legal files were removed from Lisa's office and from the legal filing rooms. My conference room table used to have stacks of file folders piled up that were actively being used to run the business. They were all gone with no way to recreate them. And it was not just the paper documents that were being taken. Agents were also making mirror images of all of our computer disk drives with the desktops and the servers. The day progressed pretty much within, without my input. I used the time to work on remaining completely comfortable with the radical situation life had stuck me in. There was really no reason to be thinking about why this was happening or how it could turn out since I had absolutely no idea what was going on. Thinking about it wasn't going to help. Instead, I really enjoyed spending my day letting go of whatever that voice was in my head trying to say and deeply relaxing whenever my heart began to feel anxious. In this situation, surrender was not an option. It was the only sane thing to do. When I left that evening, I sought out the legal agents. I thanked them for being so cordial, and I told them that I wished that we could have met under different circumstances. To me, they were just people doing their jobs to the best of their ability. It certainly wasn't their fault. When the sun set on September 3, 2003, nationwide, the government had taken 1.2 million email messages 1,500 boxes of files containing more than 3 million pages of documents and 830,000 computer files. This was indeed a day that would live on in infamy. Chapter 51. Attorneys, Attorneys, and More Attorneys. The next morning, I got a preview of what my life was going to be like for a while. The headlines of the Gainesville Sun read, FBI raids Alachua Medical Manager offices. Underneath was my picture next to the story heading, Wall Street halts the trading of WebMD stock just before noon. I knew it didn't make any difference that I hadn't done anything and that I didn't even know what the raid was all about, but I was headline news. I'd never been publicly disgraced before, and I noticed that it definitely stirred up the psyche. The voice inside my head kept wanting me to explain that this had nothing to do with me. There was certainly no lack of people wanting to hear what I had to say. Media outlets from all over the country, including the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, were trying to reach me for comment. Fortunately, I knew better. I had spent all these years quieting down the mental voice, and I had learned that listening to it only fuels the fire. I knew how powerful it was to simply relax and release past that urge to defend oneself. I resolved to, to only discuss the matter when absolutely necessary. Otherwise, I would just go about my business as usual. I hadn't done anything wrong, so why would I let this affect me? Over time, it would work itself out. In the meantime, I was not going to let it steal the great peace and joy I felt deep inside. Right from the beginning, I resolved to use the whole situation to finally free myself from whatever was left of that scared person inside that had always held me back. This was my entire journey, liberation at any cost. We had a conference call with the corporate attorneys first thing in the morning. No one could make sense of what happened. Regardless, the first order of business was to hire an attorney. Well, not exactly an attorney separate law firms to represent both the company and the board of directors and a criminal attorney for everyone whose name was on the list. I could see that the corporate attorneys were taking this very seriously. They had explained that it didn't matter if you were as clean as a whistle. A raid of this magnitude foreshadowed major problems and everyone needed legal representation. That meant at least 20 attorneys. 
I soon found out that even that found out even that wasn't going to be enough. The investigation was coming out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Charleston, South Carolina, so it was suggested that the senior executives also line up attorneys licensed to practice there. So now we're talking about hiring 30 to 40 attorneys plus two firms over the company. If I hadn't been stunned by the raid, I was certainly going to be stunned by what it meant to defend yourself against it. I couldn't relate to suddenly being thrust in the situation. I knew absolutely nothing about criminal matters. I had never even thought about sub about the subject. This made me very naive about the inherent danger I would be facing. If I had been left on my own, I probably would have figured that since I didn't do anything, I could just go and talk to the government. Fortunately, I was surrounded by savvy business people who knew that you don't do anything until you consult an attorney and find out what's going on. I certainly learned the wisdom of that device as events unfolded. Over the next few weeks, WebMD's board hired Williams and Connolly to represent the company. This firm was not the largest in Washington, but it had the reputation of being one of the best for this sort of case. I asked Jim Mercer, since he was the attorney I respected the most, to help me select my attorney. I was a novice, and he was an expert. I really appreciated all the help and support I got from him. Jim steered me to an attorney at Williams and Connolly who gave me a list of highly respected criminal lawyers who he had worked with in the past. It seemed like such a big decision. I wouldn't have any idea how to interview a top-notch criminal attorney. I followed Jim's advice and started to set up preliminary meetings with some of the attorneys. But in my heart, I knew that I was going to leave this decision up to the flow of life. As it turned out, events unfolded such that I met with only one attorney, Randy Turk. Randy was a senior partner with Baker Botts, one of the country's oldest and most respected law firms. His resume read like a who's who in the white-collar criminal defense world. It ran from successfully defending Hughes Aircraft Company against a $400 million claim by the U.S. government regarding the repair of the Hubble Space Telescope to being one of the key lawyers on the defense team for Michael K. Dave Reagan, White House Deputy Chief of Staff. At a trial of allegations of perjury and obstruction of justice, the list went on and on and on. Of all the information I could gather about Randy, it was something at the attorney at Williams and Connolly that had said that it influenced me the most. He had heard that I had a ponytail and lived in the woods. He told me that all of the top defense attorneys that he knew was the Randy was the most avant-garde. The attorney felt that based on what he had heard about me, Randy and I would get along really great. I met Randy for the first time in New York. He flew in for the WebMD shareholder meeting to meet with me and Jim Mercer, who was helping me select my attorney. I was immediately comfortable with Randy. He had been defending people against the government charges for more than 30 years. He practiced in Washington and was obviously very successful. Randy seemed to be intrigued by the case and my unique background. He had learned what he could from his contact at Williams and Connolly and Jim and I proceeded to tell him what we knew. WebMD had gotten much better idea of the focus of the government investigation by the time Randy and I met. As we had suspected, Bobby Davids was behind all of this. After the company had successfully subpoenaed his hidden bank accounts in early 2003, Bobby David knew he was caught. It was just a matter of time before we realized that he had stolen almost $6 million in kickbacks and embezzlement schemes. He was going to prison for a very long time, but Bobby was a con man and apparently a very good one. He had certainly conned us for years while managing to carry out his fraud undetected. In March 2003, Bobby Davids embarked on the con of his life. 
how to avoid punishment for what he had done. He walked into the U.S. Attorney's Office in Charleston, South Carolina, near where he lived, and presented himself as a whistleblower. He told the federal authorities that he was an executive who had been involved in a massive accounting fraud at a public company. He admitted that as part of his fraud, he had taken kickbacks from himself and a few others, but he was prepared to turn in the entire upper management team if the government was prepared to cut him a deal. For the next six months leading up to the raid, while WebMD attorneys were openly investigating all of David's and his group had done, Bobby Davids was secretly, secretly hand-feeding the government an intricate web of lies. Davids was, in fact, a CPA in charge of the entire dealer acquisition program. As such, he had detailed knowledge of every acquisition and every supporting document. Davids was completely free to create the entire frame of reference for the government about the company and its executives. With the skill of a Picasso, he was painting a masterpiece on the blank canvas of people's minds. All he had to do was be sure that he told the story in a way that would later be supportable by the documents that they would find. He knew there was not going to be any hard evidence found to support his world according to Bobby. But if he says that he was told to do a deal in a certain way, and he could later show that, indeed, the deal was done that way, it would support his story. The problem is that it would not support the he-was-told part. But if he tells the government investigators what they're going to find and they keep finding it, then that would lend credence to the rest of his story. Eventually, he would earn their confidence. If knowledge is power, and Bobby Davids had all the power. In that early interaction with the government, he was the one with all the knowledge. Randy explained that this was not an unusual situation. The government forms a view and then tries to find evidence to support that view. This is what the FBI is currently doing with the mass of documents taken during the raid. Randy said the problem with that many documents is that you can always find a way to make them say what you want. On that ominous note, Randy agreed to defend me to the best of his ability, and we shook hands. I could have never known the odyssey we were about to embark on together, nor would I have known how close our friendship would become. All I knew at the time was that the same flow of life's events that had led me to this mess had just led me to my lead attorney. Following this flow was my great experiment, and there was no turning back now.